Chapters 51, 52, and 53 of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 51 Examination day came, and Ruth bent her determined steps to the city hall. The apartment designated was already crowded with waiting applicants, who regarded with jealous eye each addition to their number as so much diminution of their own individual chance for success. Ruth's cheeks grew hot as their scrutinizing and unfriendly glances were bent on her, and that feeling of utter desolation came over her, which was always so overwhelming whenever she presented herself as a suppliant for public favor. In truth, it was but a poor preparation for the inquisitional torture before her. The applicants were called out one by one in alphabetical order, Ruth, inwardly blessing the early nativity of the letter H, for those anticipatory shower-bath medications were worse to her than the shock of a volley of chilling interrogations. Letter H. Ruth rose with a flutter at her heart, and entered a huge, barren-looking room, at the further end of which sat, in August state, the dread committee. Very respectable were the gentlemen of whom that committee was composed. Respectable was written all over them, from the crowns of their scholastic heads to the very tips of their polished boots, and correct and methodical as a revised dictionary they sat, with folded hands and spectacle-bestridden noses. Ruth seated herself in the victim's chair, before this august body, facing a flood of light from a large bay window that nearly extinguished her eyes. "'What is your age?' asked the elder of the inquisitors. Scratch went the extorted secret on the nib of the reporter's pen. "'Where was you educated? Was Colburn or Emerson your teacher standard for arithmetic? Did you cipher on a slate or blackboard? Did you learn the multiplication table skipping or in order? Was you taught astronomy or philosophy first? Are you accustomed to a quill or a steel pen, lines or blank paper in writing?' Did you use Smith's or Jones's writing book? Did you learn geography by maps or globes? Globes? asked Mr. Squizzle, repeating Ruth's answer. Possible? They use globes at the celebrated Gerald Institute, remarked Mr. Fizzle. Impossible, retorted Mr. Squizzle, growing plethoric in the face. Globes, sir, are exploded. No institution of any note uses globes, sir. I know it. "'And I know you labor under a mistake,' said Fizzle, elevating his chin and folding his arms pugnaciously over his striped vest. "'I am acquainted with one of the teachers in that highly respectable school.' "'And I, sir,' said Squizzle, "'am well acquainted with the principal, who is a man of too much science, sir, to use globes, sir, to teach geography, sir.' At this, Mr. Fizzle settled down behind his dicky with a quenched air, and the very important question being laid on the shelf, Mr. Quizzle, handing Ruth a copy of Pollock's Course of Time, requested her to read a marked passage, indicated by a perforation of his penknife. Poor Ruth stood about as fair a chance of proving her ability to read poetry, as would Fanny Kimball to take up a play haphazard at one of her dramatic readings, without a previous opportunity to gather up the author's connecting thread. 
Our heroine, however, went through the motions. This farce concluded, Ruth was dismissed into the apartment in waiting to make room for the other applicants, each of whom returned with red faces, moist foreheads, and a carry-me-back-to-old-Virginia air. An hour's added suspense, and the four owners of the four pair of inquisitorial spectacles marched, in procession, into the room in waiting, and wheeling face about with military precision, thumped on the table and ejaculated, Attention! Instantaneously, five and twenty pairs of eyes, black, blue, brown, and gray, were riveted, and each owner, being supplied with pen, ink, and paper, was allowed ten minutes, with the four pair of spectacles leveled full at her, to express her thoughts on the following subject. Was Christopher Columbus standing up or sitting down when he discovered America? The four watches of the committee men being drawn out, pencils began to scratch, and the terminus of the allotted minutes, in the middle of a sentence, was the place for each inspired improvisatress to stop. These hasty effusions being endorsed by appending each writer's signature, new paper was furnished, and attention was again ejaculated by a short, pursy individual who seemed to be struggling to get out of his coat by climbing over his shirt collar. Little armies of figures were then rattled off from the end of this gentleman's tongue, with Peter Piper pick in velocity, which the anxious pinwomen in waiting were expected to arrest in flying, and have the sum total of the whole, as one of the erudite committee observed, already added up, when the illustrious arithmetician stopped to take wind. This being the finale, the ladies were sapiently informed that, as only one schoolmistress was needed, only one out of the large number of applicants could be elected, and that the committee would now sit on them. At this gratifying intelligence, the ladies, favored by a plentiful shower of rain, betook themselves to the respective homes, four and twenty, God help them to dream of a reprieve from starvation which, notwithstanding the six hours' purgatory they had passed through, was destined to elude their eager grasp. The votes were cast. Ruth was not elected. She had been educated, whether fortunately or unfortunately, let the sequel of my story decide, at a school where Webster was used instead of Worcester. The greatest gun on the committee was a Worcesterite, Mr. Millet and Mr. Devlin always followed in the wake of great guns. Mr. Millet and Mr. Devlin voted against Ruth. End of chapter 51 Chapter 52 It was four o'clock in the afternoon, and very tranquil and quiet at the skiddies. A tidy, rosy-cheeked young woman sat rocking the deserted little Tommy to sleep, to the tune of, I've been roaming. The hearth was neatly swept. The tin and pewter vessels hung, brightly polished, from their respective vessels hung, brightly polished, from their respective shelves. The Maltese cat lay winking in the middle of the floor, watching the play of a stray sunbeam, which had found its way over the shed and into the small window. Ruth and her children were quiet, as usual, in their gloomy back chamber. Mr. Skiddy, a few blocks off, sat perched on a high stool in the counting-room of Messengers Fogg and Company. Noiselessly the front door opened, and the veritable Mrs. Skiddy, followed by Johnny and Sammy, crept through the front entry and entered unannounced into the kitchen. 
The rosy-cheeked young woman looked at Mrs. Skiddy, Mrs. Skiddy looked at her, and Tommy looked at both of them. Mrs. Skiddy then boxed the rosy-cheeked young woman's ears, and snatching the bewildered baby from her grasp, ejected her with lightning velocity through the street door and turned the key. It was all the work of an instant. Sammy and Johnny were used to domestic whirlwinds, so they were not surprised into any little remarks or exclamations, but the cat, less philosophical, laid back her ears and made for the ash hole, while Mrs. Skiddy, seating herself in the rocking chair, unhooked her traveling dress and reinstated the delighted Tommy into all his little infantile privileges. Mr. Skiddy had now been a whole week a widower, time enough for a man in that condition to grow philosophical. In fact, Skiddy was content. He had tasted the sweets of liberty, and he liked them. The baby, poor little soul, tired of remonstrance, had given out from sheer weariness, and took resignedly as a little Christian to his pewter pouringer. Yes, Skiddy liked it. He could be an hour behind his time without dodging, on his return, a rattling storm of abuse and crockery. He could spend an evening out without drawing a map of his travels before starting. On the afternoon in question he felt particularly felicitous. first because he had dined off fried liver and potatoes, a dish which he particularly affected, and which, on that very account, he could seldom get in his own domicile. Secondly, he was engaged to go that very evening with his old love, Nancy Spriggins, to see the panorama of Niagara, and he had left orders with Betty to have tea half an hour earlier in consequence, and to be sure and iron and air his killing plaid vest by seven o'clock. As the afternoon waned, Skiddy grew restless. He made wrong entries in the ledger, dipped his pen into the sand-box instead of the ink-stand, and several times said, Yes, dear, to his employer, Mr. Fogg, of Fogg Square. Six o'clock came at last, and the emancipated Skiddy, turning his back on business, walked towards home in peace with himself and in love with Nancy Spriggins. On the way he stopped to purchase a bouquet of roses and geraniums, with which to regale that damsel's old factories during the evening's entertainment. Striding through the front entry, like a man who felt himself to be master of his own house, Skiddy hastened to the kitchen to expedite tea. If he was not prepared for Mrs. Skiddy's departure, still less was he prepared for her return, especially with that tell-tale bouquet in his hand. But, like all other hen-pecked husbands, on the back of the scapegoat, cunning, he fled away from the uplifted lash. "'My dear Matilda!' exclaimed Skiddy. "'My own wife! How could you be so cruel? Every day since your departure, hoping to find you here on my return from the store, I have purchased a bouquet like this to present you. My dear wife, let bygones be bygones. My love for you is imperishable.' "'Very good, Mr. Skiddy,' said his wife, accepting Nancy Spriggan's bouquet with a queenly nod. "'And now let us have no more talk of California, if you please, Mr. Skiddy.' "'Certainly not, my darling. I was a brute, a beast, a wretch, a hottentot, a cannibal, a vampire, to distress you so. Dear little Tommy, how pleasant it seems to see him in your arms again.' "'Yes,' replied Mrs. Skiddy. "'I was not five minutes in sending that red-faced German girl spinning through the front door. "'I hope you have something decent for us to eat, Skiddy.' 
Johnny and Sammy are pretty sharp set. Why don't you come and speak to your father, boys? The young gentleman, thus summoned, slowly came forward, looking altogether undecided whether it was best to notice their father or not. A ginger cake, however, and a slice of buttered bread, plentifully powdered with sugar, wonderfully assisted them in coming to a decision. As to Nancy Spriggins, poor soul, she pulled off her gloves, and pulled them on, that evening, and looked at her watch, and looked up street and down street, and declared, as the clock told the hour for retiring, that man was a, a, in short, that woman was born to trouble, as the sparks are, to fly away. Mrs. Skitty resumed her household duties with as much coolness as if there had been no interregnum, and received the boarders at tea that night, just as if she had parted with them that day at dinner. Skitty was apparently as devoted as ever. The uninitiated boarders opened their eyes in bewildered wonder, and triumph sat inscribed on the arch of Mrs. Skitty's imposing Roman nose. The domestic horizon still continued cloudless at the morning's breakfast. After the boarders had left the table, the market prices of beef, veal, pork, cutlets, chops, and steaks were discussed as usual. The bill of fare for the day was drawn up by Mrs. Skitty, and her obedient spouse departed to execute her market orders. End of chapter 52 Chapter 53 Well, I hope you have been comfortable in my absence, Mrs. Hall, said Mrs. Skitty, after dispatching her husband to market, as she seated herself in the chair nearest the door. Ha, <laughs> ha! John and I may call it quits now. He is a very good fellow, John, except these little tantrums he gets into once in a while. The only way is to put a stop to it at once, and let him see who is master. John will never set a river on fire. There's no sort of use in his trying to take the reins. The man wasn't born for it. I'm too sharp for him, that's a fact. Ha, <laughs> ha! Poor Johnny! I must tell you what a trick I played him about two years after our marriage. You must know he had to go away on business for Fogg and Company, to collect bills or something of that sort. Well, he made a great fuss about it, as husbands who like to go away from home always do, and said he should pine for the sight of me, and never know a happy hour till he saw me again, and all that, and finally declared he would not go without I would let him take my daguerreotype. Of course, I knew that was all humbug, but I consented. The likeness was pronounced good, and placed by me in his traveling trunk when I packed his clothes. Well, he was gone a month, and when he came back, he told me, great fool, what a comfort my daguerreotype was to him, and how he had looked at it twenty times a day, and kissed it as many more, whereupon I went to his trunk, and opening it, took out the case and showed it to him, without the plate which I had taken care to slip out of the frame just before he started, and which he had never found out. That's a specimen of John Skitty, and John Skitty is a fair specimen of the rest of his sex, let me tell you, Mrs. Hall. Well, of course he looked sheepish enough, and now, whenever I want to take the nonsense out of him, all I have to do is to point to that daguerreotype case, which I keep lying on the mantel on purpose. When a woman is married, Mrs. Hall, she must make up her mind either to manage or to be managed. I prefer to manage, said the amiable Mrs. Skitty, and I flatter myself John understands it by this time. 
"'But, dear me, I can't stand here prating to you all day. "'I must look round and see what mischief has been done in my absence "'by that lazy-looking red-faced German girl,' said Mrs. Skitty, "'laughing heartily as she related how she had sent her spinning through the front door the night before.' Half the forenoon was occupied by Mrs. Skitty in counting up spoons, forks, towels, and baby pinafores, to see if they had sustained loss or damage during her absence. "'Very odd dinner don't come,' she said, consulting the kitchen clock. "'It is high time that beef was on, roasting.' It was odd, and odder still that Skitty had not appeared to tell her why the dinner didn't come. Mrs. Skitty wasted no time in words about it. No, she seized her bonnet and went immediately to Fogg and Company to get some tidings of him. They were apparently quite as much at a loss as herself to account for Skitty's non-appearance. She was just departing when one of the sub-clerks, whom the unfortunate Skitty had once snubbed, whispered a word in her ear, the effect of which was instantaneous. "'Mister, did she let the grass grow under her feet "'till she tracked Skitty to the wharf "'and boarded the seagull bound for California "'and brought the crestfallen man triumphantly back "'to his domicile amid convulsions of laughter "'from the amused captain and his crew? "'No.' "'There now,' said his amiable spouse, untying her bonnet, "'there's another flash in the pan, Skitty. "'Anybody who thinks to circumvent Matilda Maria Skitty,' "'must get up early in the morning and find themselves too late at that. "'Now hold this child, dumping the doomed baby into his lap, "'while I comb my hair. "'Goodness knows you weren't worth bringing back, "'but when I set out to have my own way, Mr. Skitty, "'Mount Vizivisk shan't stop me.' "'Skitty tended the baby without a remonstrance. "'He perfectly understood that for a probationary time "'he should be put on the limits.' the street door being the boundary line. He heaved no sigh when his coat and hat, with the rest of his wearing apparel, were locked up, and the key buried in the depths of his wife's pocket. He played with Tommy, and made card-houses for Sammy and Johnny, wound several tangled skins of silk for Maria Matilda, mended a broken button on the closet door, replaced a missing knob on one of the bureau drawers, and appeared to be in as resigned and proper a frame of mind as such a perfidious wretch could be expected to be in. Two or three weeks passed in this state of incarceration, during which the errand-boy of Fogg and Company had been repeatedly informed by Mrs. Skitty that the doctor hoped Mr. Skitty would soon be sufficiently convalescent to attend to business. As to Skitty, he continued at intervals to shed crocodile tears over his past shortcomings, or rather his shortgoings, in consequence of this apparently submissive frame of mind, he, one fine morning, received total absolution from Mrs. Skitty, and leave to go to the store, which Skitty peremptorily declined, desiring, as he said, to test the sincerity of his repentance by a still longer period of probation." "'Don't be a fool, Skitty,' said Maria Matilda, pointing to the Daguerreotype case, and then crowding his beaver down over his eyes. "'Don't be a fool. Make a bee-line for the store now, and tell Fogg you've had an attack of rheumatism.' And Maria Matilda laughed at her wretched pun. Skitty obeyed. No Uriah Heep could have outdone him in humbleness, as he crept up the long street, until a friendly corner hid him from the lynx eyes of Maria Matilda. Then Richard was himself again. Drawing a long breath, 
our flying Mercury whizzed past the milestones, and before sundown of the same day was under full sail for California. Just one half hour our Napoleon in petticoats spent in reflection, after being satisfied that Skitty was really on the deep blue sea. In one day she had cleared her house of boarders, and reserving one room for herself and children, filled all the other apartments with lodgers, who paid her good prices, and taking their meals downtown, made her no trouble beyond the care of their respective rooms. About a year after a letter came from Skitty. He was disgusted with ill-luck at gold-digging, and ill-luck everywhere else. He had been burnt out, and robbed, and everything else but murdered, and humbly requested his dear Maria Matilda to send him the passage money to return home. Mrs. Skitty's picture should have been taken at that moment. My pen fails. Drawing from her pocket a purse well filled with her own honest earnings, she chinked its contents at some phantom shape discernible to her eyes alone, while, through her set teeth, hissed out, like ten thousand serpents, the word NEVER. End of chapter 53